X-Ray. It's the Beer on a Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Beer Bible Second Edition. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. See? That intro just goes like that, baby, like butter. All right. Well, I'll just leave it that way. Yeah. <laughs> our long, our long foray introductions. I think we finally hit the nail on the head. The short, sweet, direct, and here we are. After 155 episodes, shows, I guess. We, I think we finally figured it out. We don't have to do a lot of fall all. Just time for us to wrap up the show. We haven't had too many Beervana podcasts lately, so apologize to everybody who's been suffering our absence. <laughs> that is, uh, Which is basically nobody. That's right. It's a very generous uh, idea. About- but as we talked about last time, been very busy. Hopefully we can get back to regular podcasting. By the way, and we mentioned this last time, Mailbag needs to get juiced up, but it's a good moment to solicit ideas, questions, topics that you would like to have covered by the beer genius over here, Jeff Allworth. Or the econ genius over there, <laughs> Patrick Emerson. Uh, so yeah, so please send in your ideas. What's new, Jeff? What's new? Well, how about that Super Bowl game? Yeah, that was amazing. Victory by the Bengals. Rams. <laughs> Wasn't it, Jeff? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, thrilling game. Who would have seen that outcome at the uh, beforehand? <laughs> uh, uh, we're recording this before the Super Bowl. That's why we're cracking ourselves up. No one else is in on the joke. You're right. And uh, <laughs> and that was for Will Romy to clip in the right the right uh, victor. That's right. Uh, he'll, he'll no doubt. He'll, he'll figure that out, and we'll get it all right. And it'll sound just. Perfect. I'm sure he'll yeah, put it in the wrong one. We are recording this on the eve of the Super Bowl almost. That's right. A couple not, days away. Not too far away. Actually, when is it? This Sunday, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah they usually hold it on a Sunday. Oh, is that why they call it Super Bowl Sunday? <laughs> Could be. <sighs> Figured that out. Yeah. And yet you still have your beard. Yeah, well, it's not long for this world. Yeah, that'll be a shame. You're going to shave those years right off. That'll be a shame. What are you going to do when you're, when you're uh, back in England and you're a little musty pub with all the old pensioners you well, won't you won't fit in anymore it, it's not uh it's not imminent so i have a chance to grow it back you gotta get your happens. anorak and go watch trains um there is a chance i'll be in oslo uh this spring though. wait what yeah that could can be cool. i come uh, of course why, why are we why would you go to oslo uh, i've been invited to speak at an event in oslo which i shouldn't talk too much about because it's not totally firmed up yet but that would be cool i'm kind of excited that would uh, be the, the norwegians have all the money man uh yeah, well yeah it yeah. works out i'm i'm definitely i'm not i cannot afford to fly so, myself to yeah. Oslo. So, so. so you got it yeah insist on it because they're they're yeah they're rolling in it baby it was actually it did occur to me recently that the last time i was in scandinavia i was in copenhagen i've never been to oslo which would be cool I've never been to norway um but yeah beer was like twelve dollars and that was Several years ago. I was just ago. about to say that apparently Oslo is like the most expensive city in the world because <laughs> that's what happens when everybody's rich. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Good for Norway, man, but bad for visitors. My mother went to Oslo a few years ago, loved it, but but felt like it was unaffordable. Yeah. <laughs> so well, if great. you go on somebody else's dime, that's the way to go. So congratulations. Exactly. Tell them that you can't travel without your- uh, I need to. 
yeah, and you can't travel without your um, sidekick, uh, podcast co-host, and um, personal manager, Patrick Emerson. All right, I'll throw that in there. We'll yeah. see what happens. No, say, and and make sure you <laughs> let them know I'm first class all the way. Or I'm not coming. All right, <laughs> yeah, first class all the way. Actually, if you just want to send them to me, I'll be your business manager. I'll negotiate for you. <laughs> I'll get you everything. <laughs> it's, it's possible you think I'm a more. Uh, uh, body that I actually so wait a minute, have. isn't it Norway? That's the Kvaikis place. It is okay. So you got to go get yourself some real Kvaikis and bring it back. Well, on I one was, of those ringy dingy things. I was thinking of calling up uh, or uh, trying to coordinate with our friend Lars Marius Garshall exactly about making a, a pilgrimage to one of these places. The Kvaik Savant or the Kvaik whatever. So that would be cool. I mean, the thing is, he's already done it all and written the book. So I, I, I can't shed any new light on it for anybody, but I would like to see it myself. I'd like to meet one of these farmer. Yeah, farmers. but I want you to bring back one of them ringy dingy things with yeast all over it. All right, I'll do it. Yeah. Probably, they probably cost $3,000. Come on, man. Because it's Nor Norway, right? To them, that's $5. All right. All right. <laughs> okay, so I'll negotiate this in as part of your, your contract going out there. All right, a yeast ring. By the way, are there any big like macro breweries in Norway that like get sold in Europe. I don't, you know, like, mm. like Denmark has, um, Carlsberg, Carlsberg and, and Nor uh, Netherlands have Heineken and I don't know, on and on. What, what, what do the Norwegians drink other than farmhouse Kvike yeast brews? Yeah. Uh, Hey, quick, Hey, quick, uh, Google search Google reveals, search reveals uh, Norway Brewing, which I believe, yeah. Uh, Unimaginably titled. Uh, well, <laughs> ironically or funnily, uh, Norway Brewing, all the stuff is showing me, is in Norway, Maine, where my wife Sally is from. <laughs> so uh, that's, oh, that's, the, awesome. that's the wrong Norway. Which, by the way, is right around the corner from Denmark and uh, down the street from Sweden. It's actually not. It's, it's down the street from Poland and not far from China. <laughs> Are you serious? It goes on and on. All I know is that um, yeah, her uh, sister lives in South Poland, Maine. One of my cousin's daughters, so also a cousin, I guess, cousin once removed, uh, went to like some violin camp in I think Denmark, Maine, or maybe it was Sweden, Maine. And I was like, yeah. oh, I know someone from Norway, and it's got to be close. And they weren't like that close, but they're all like that part of Maine. Apparently, just decided it was going to name its little towns off of the world. There's a famous signpost somewhere, and it shows all the different countries and places and i guess play. when you're stuck in the backwoods of exactly. maine what else do they have going on Jeez, you know yeah. what would be funny let's name this china <laughs> we'll name that one poland <laughs> oh mainers their cards let's talk about beer all right let's talk about beer the usual history of american hoppy ales takes us back to northern california and the founding breweries there who reinvented staid british ales by injecting them with expressive american hops sierra's celebration a proto ipa uh, seemed to, to form a straight line through history uh, to the present moment's hoppy IPAs. But today we're going to talk about a parallel development that happened further north, sparked by a colorful pioneer who is sadly an increasingly forgotten figure. Ooh, what a nice tease. Oh, thank you. Yeah. All that soon, but first, the news. Well, we talked about not necessarily sad, but on February 1st, the city of Portland lost one of its most beloved residents. Former Mayor Bud Clark died at age 90. 
life well lived, I say, served two popular and successful terms from 1985 to 1992, but may even be more famous for the poster he created as a fundraiser in 1978. Titled Expose Yourself to Art, it featured Bud dressed like a vagrant holding his trench coat open to a downtown statue. But more than those things, Clark was the city's most iconic iconic publican, running two pubs for the past 61 years, including the Goose Hollow Inn, which he owned from 1967 until his death. Yeah, many things to say about Bud Clark. Yeah. One thing to say about Bud Clark is that when you and I, my dad had moved here years before, but you and I first came here as permanent residents when we entered Lewis and Clark College, and Bud was the mayor at that time, and right. he remained the mayor until he essentially left to go to grad school. And so he was a big part of, of uh, our early Portland experience. And he was just, yeah, a colorful character and a, and a, a gregarious guy and, and just kind of was part of the Portland uh, zeitgeist. And he was, a, he was actually a pretty good, gov, uh, pretty good mayor, too. Yeah. When you look back, uh, he was followed by Vera Katz. Those two mayors uh, encompassed the first, I don't know, dozen more, more years that we were here. And I kind of got used to having really effective, competent mayors. And then we haven't had a good one since, basically. Yeah. Like, well, it's a series of, you know people who tried but didn't really it takes a very well. special type of person to be a good mayor in portland because of our crazy form of government right which is uh city council form so there's five votes and the mayor is just one um and so you basically it's all about building coalitions and gaining momentum and, and getting popular opinion on your side and so on and so forth so it takes a kind of both a, a skillful your gregarious person who can sort of do good on the PR, but you also have to manage the egos of four other people. And so you have to be good in small groups and good in big events, and then also a successful bureaucrat. So there's a lot of things going on. That's the other thing about this form of government was that each of the counselors is in charge of different city bureaus, right. which they have no, usually absolutely no experience in, and uh, um, and uh, qualifications to do. <laughs> yeah. So it makes, makes for Portland an interesting place. And, and Bud, uh, that was the only political station he ever had. He didn't come from the city council. He didn't come from another part of government, but he came as a publican. And I think a lot of the things that you were talking about uh, that you need to be skilled at, you actually learn pretty well in a pub. You know, he was yeah. used to managing a lot of people and yeah. forming relationships with, with a lot of diverse types of people mm -hmm. uh, getting along. He was like, I, I mean, I've, we've lived here since 1986 and I haven't really ever heard a bad thing said about Bud, and that's a hard thing to do as a political figure. Um, yeah. He was he was just really well liked, and uh, yeah, it, you know. Yeah, he, that's a very good point. That might be the best training of all is to be <laughs> to be a publican <laughs> like him. Certainly better than a sort of a typical government bureaucrat type that kind of comes up the ranks. Yeah, I think most people get to that position and then get really super frustrated because you're so powerless. Yeah, I was reflecting on it when he died. It it was uh, when he was elected. Um, it was not considered a plus that he was a saloon owner. No. Uh, that was still a disreputable line of work to be in. And uh, nobody gave him a chance because they thought, oh, he's this kind of weird, you know, he was a neighborhood activist. So he was actually sort of familiar uh, as a grassroots activist, but um, he was never taken seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, and he uh, he took on uh, Frank Avanci, the, the incumbent mayor, and uh, they they kind of hoped that he would give him a good enough run in the primary that it would force uh, Ivancy to uh, like 
make his policies known and, you know, be honest. And uh, Bud won it in the primary with 54% of the vote. He won it outright. <laughs> Nobody saw that coming. So it was this shocking kind of yeah. development. Uh, so, yeah. And it's kind of lost to the sands of history, but for a while that exposure to the art poster was very uh, popular, but it would be something that you couldn't really do in today's day and age. I don't the Beer Institute, an industry trade organization recently reported that brewers sold uh, a little bit more than 169 million barrels of beer in 2021, almost identical to 2020. That seems like a lot of beer, but a decade ago, U.S. breweries sold 180 million barrels. That's also the amount they sold 30 years ago, and only slightly more than they sold 40 years ago, when the country still had when the country had 100 million fewer people. And it's not just the COVID dip either. Beer sales are actually up a few million from their 20 and 18 and 2019 pre-COVID levels. So it's interesting. Uh, I, f- I follow this stuff uh, because uh, the state of beer, it, you know, is a fascinating kind of uh, topic and we tend to segment it. We don't think about the whole thing in aggregate so much. Uh, and yeah. uh, we, you know, we, we have craft beer imports and domestic beer and we talk about them separately and they're different kind of fortunes. Mm-hmm. But in terms of per capita consumption, they continue to decline as the country expands and they beer, beer just stays flat. So that's yeah. interesting. I may be putting you on the spot unfairly. I just do you know uh, what trends are in other categories? So hard alcohol, wine, wine is just alcohol consumption in general. If memory serves, wine is up. Uh, and I know in liquor. Uh, there's been a lot of rearrangement in which liquors are popular, mm-hmm. uh, but I can't remember offhand. Okay, that's fine. I'm just curious uh, yeah. what the overall trend. I guess the main question I'm wondering is just whether overall alcohol consumption is up, down, steady. I think it's I think it's down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to interview Bud Clark uh, for the Widmer Way, and I was looking through my notes for a blog post that I posted when he died, and uh, he uh, he talked about how many uh, kegs of beer the pub used to sell back in, uh, in the early days. Uh-huh. And it was, it was a, it was a really large amount such, such that, uh, the, the Anheuser-Busch, uh, distributor commented that it was one of the most successful pubs that they knew about. Uh-huh. And, and he added at the end, people drank a lot more beer than they did back then than they do now. Uh, yeah. So I think people just generally drink less. We're a little healthier. So yeah, yeah. not that's a bad what, thing. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. So Finally, apropos of today's episode, we have a few notes from the Trade Association of American Hop Growers. The number of acres grew 3.8% last year to a total of over 60,000 in the U.S. Things are mostly stable on the list of most grown hops, although uh, though in one change, Mosaic has overtaken CTZ as the second most planted just behind Citra. Citra, Mosaic, CTZ, Cascade, Simcoe, Centennial, Pato, Amarillo, uh, Chinook and El Dorado are your top ten. Sorry, that was 10. Yeah, yeah I, I was about to just add wing it and add that, but <laughs> sorry about that. That uh, was a a writer error there. Yeah, the the only one that I'm not familiar with is the Pato hop. Yeah, that that was I put that uh, I put I had a blog post about this too, and I got a lot of people like, mm, what's Pato? Yeah. Uh, it's it's a lager hop, uh-huh. and there's that. Uh, which answers it kind of, but not entirely. Uh, apparently, uh, I don't know. There's speculation, and I don't actually, <laughs> I don't, I didn't track this down, but maybe it's being used uh, by domestic brewers for. Uh, Is it kind of got hop. noble hop characteristics? Yeah, yeah it's got okay. clean bitterness and yeah. so on. 
Ah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. And here's a fascinating little factoid, uh, which I discovered when I looked into all of that. I, uh, so nobody cares about Oregonians, but you're an Oregonian, so you may care. Have you noticed that the percentage, as a percentage, Oregon continues to grow less hops than uh, before? Like, I don't know. Ten years ago, we had we we produced like fifteen percent of the U.S. hops. Of U.S. hops. Okay, yeah. So and now we're down to like nine percent. Are you aware of this trend? I am not aware of the trend, but it doesn't actually surprise me. Well, what's fascinating about this trend is uh, it's not nearly as depressing as I thought. <laughs> uh, what what happened is there's been a massive <laughs> explosion in acreage, and Oregon's has just grown more slowly than oh. uh, Idaho and Washington, and so oh, our our hop. Uh, fields have grown by 41% in the last decade. Uh, I'd say, I thought what you were going to say is that, well, when I assumed is that there's hops being grown farther afield, like in upstate New York, which I know there's some and other parts of the US, but no, you're just talking about Idaho, Washington, Oregon competition. Yeah. Of those 60,000 hops, something like 2,000 are grown outside the Northwest. So. It's yeah, so far no pressure from other places, and it's really hard. We that's a whole another topic. It's very hard for those uh, other states to get into the market because it's so consolidated here. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they all can't the infra- all the infra- infrastructures here, and exactly they yeah. can't get into the inject themselves into the market so easily. So it's really retarded their growth. So we don't need to go into that. But anyway, if you have been noticing those trends and feeling sorry for Oregon growers, don't feel sorry. They're actually growing. They're doing fine. All right. Yeah. Well, when we last left off. You promised us a colorful pioneer who is now an increasingly forgotten figure yeah. in the history of American IPA. Yeah. So tell us <laughs> who, this, who this figure is. Well, uh, many people who are around here and who are of a certain age will know his name, but many others won't. Uh, I'm talking about Bert Grant, mm-hmm. who was the founder of the first brew pub in America in 1982 in Yakima, Washington. Speaking of hops. Yeah, speaking of hops. And we'll, we'll trot through his history here in a minute. But uh, he, yeah, so he was, he was this, this figure who early on was one of the pioneers in craft brewing and certainly one of the pioneers of the Pacific Northwest. So if you're old enough, you kind of know you've heard of him and you used to be able to buy his beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has been oh, well over 20 years now that that brand has been gone. Yeah. Uh, and we've kind of forgotten uh, – you know, why it was significant. A lot of brands have been gone. And most of the brands that were came from that early era were not actually very important breweries. Right. Um, you know, you can feel a little sad that anybody goes away, but uh, they didn't necessarily contribute too much to the, you know, the culture or the development of beer. That's not the case with Bert Grant. He was an incredibly pivotal figure. And it's why I wrote a blog post on him and one of my making of the uh, classic series mm-hmm. and why I thought we should talk about him because uh, there is this kind of myth that's being developed now or not myth, but uh, as, as American IPAs become more and more popular, uh, we have a kind of rigid sense of where influence comes from. Right. Um, and uh, I, I think it's worth revisiting that because uh, craft brewing happened at an incredibly small scale and so it was always very local. Like Sierra Nevada wasn't distributing beer uh, nationally for a lot of years. Right. So the influence of Sierra Nevada did not extend beyond Northern California. It certainly, you know, we didn't we didn't know about it in, in Oregon uh, in the 1980s, unless you were a brewer who happened to know that there was a brewery down there, and you went down there to visit this guy Ken Grossman to see what he was doing. Right. Um, 
So the same thing happened in, in the Northwest. So you had these little pockets and influence was centrally located, not regionally located. Yeah. Uh, so Burt Grant is this interesting figure because he started brewing the first IPA, uh, his first IPA in 1983. Wow. Yeah. Which is super, super early. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember a decade or so ago, I got in a big debate with, uh, Greg Cook who claimed to have made the first, uh, yeah, it was parsed very carefully. Some, but anyway, he was talking about his, his, uh, IPA is being stone brewing, stone brewing, right. Mm -hmm. Being one of the first, uh, IPAs on the market. And at the time I, I even forgot as we were having this debate, I even forgot about Bert, but Bert was incredibly important. So I, I want to mention Bert and, and restore him. I want to, I want to restore him and try to make the history. Yeah. Try to make the, the argument that I think one of the reasons the Northwest has its own culture around hoppy IPAs can be traced back to Bert. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he's an interesting guy. Well, I'll go through this kind of quickly because it's probably not super interesting to go into the deep background, but he, his father was a brewer and he, uh, uh, got into the beer business, uh, when he was a teenager in Canada. So he's a Canadian, uh, Uh, and he went to work for Stroh's and I don't know, you know, he, this is like the early 20th century. So apparently you could be a 16 year old working for Stroh's in Canada back then. (laughs) I don't really know how that works, but, um, uh, he, he lost his job in the 1950s, and then he became a, a consultant. And eventually, in the 1960s, he landed at SS Steiner, which is one of those big hop brokers that right. is responsible for making it very hard for people in New York to get their their hops to market. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he, you know, this was this was his great love. He was a hops guy. He really, really loved hops. Yeah. Um, and so, getting to work for a hop broker was really important for him. He. Uh, served on the uh, Hops Research Council, which at the time was um, uh, all geared around uh, macro loggers. So all mm-hmm. the hops research then was designed for uh, increasing uh, uh, IBUs. And in the 1960s, it was really about creating an American noble hop. And he was involved mm-hmm. in the creation of uh, supporting, uh, he didn't really do any of the agronomics or anything like that, but supporting the the project that would become Cascade Hops. Right. Um, and he also, and this is kind of amazing, he developed the first U.S. hop pelletizer. And I think he's even got the patent on that. It's still kind of a legacy. So uh, almost all the hops made. Explain, almost all explain the, what that is. Yeah. Almost all the beer in America now uses hop pellets. And basically what it is, is you hops look like little pine cones. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means they have a lot of volume and they, they can also soak up a lot of beer. Uh, so Bert invented a system of mashing these things down into little pellets, mm-hmm. um, which are uh, exposed to a lot less oxygen. Uh, they don't degrade nearly as fast. Uh, they're easier to package and ship and, and use in the brewery, which is why almost everybody uses them now. Yeah. Uh, so that's Albert Grant. He's a, kind of a big wheel. Even before he, at age 52, he fa- founds his own brewery uh, in Yakima, where uh, he was living. So S.S. Steiner is in, uh, it's not called S.S. Steiner anymore. Uh, it's Hop Steiner now. Right. Uh, it's in uh, it's in Yakima. All the all the big uh, hop companies are in Yakima. Yeah, surrounded by hop fields. Yep. Uh, and he founded Yakima Brewing and Malting, 
1982 and, and got the law changed so that he could have a brew pub because back in the 80s, you know, up until the 1980s, it, I don't think anywhere in the country you could legally open a brew pub. So everybody right. had to change the laws to get that done. Yeah. And he was the first out of the gate to do it. Uh, and he founded this little brewery in Yakima uh, that uh, brewed a beer, the first beer he brewed harkened back to his his Scottish tradition. His, fa- his family was Scottish and he would often appear uh, in kilts and uh-huh. uh, uh, bagpipe accompaniment. At <laughs> uh, he, so he was really into Scottish ale. So he made this beer. The first beer out of the gate was a Scottish ale, uh, which was absolutely not a Scottish ale. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but it was a, it was an incredibly American ale by a guy who was super in love with hops. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in fact, there's funny stories. Like he, he used to travel around uh, with hop, some kind of hop extract that he got from Steiner. And when he was at a pub, he would put it in his Budweiser and stuff. <laughs> he, hated, he hated the insipidness of American uh, beer. So he always wanted to get back to making characterful, characterful beer like he grew up uh, on in Canada way, way, way back in, you know, long, long ago times. Right. And so he started, uh, he started his own brewery and, uh, the, the first beer he made was only 4.7%, uh, alcohol, but it was, uh, 40 to 45 IB. <laughs> it was a small system. So he, he, he uh, Blowing yeah, people away with bitterness. At the yeah. Point. Yeah. He gave that range because it varied a little bit, but, um, uh, you know, crazy, crazy hoppy beers. Yeah. Like this is 1982. We didn't no, no American knew what a hop tasted like. No. Uh, it was, it was kind of crazy to be doing that. Um, in 1983, he released two beers and I think, you know, you can kind of see in, in the, the contours of the beers that he made that he really at a, at a kind of a, an instinctive level understood where the American craft beer market was headed. His next two beers were an IPA and an Imperial Stout. (laughs) (laughs) And those came out in uh, 1983. And I want to, I'll talk a lot about that, uh, that IPA, but I wonder, should we, should we uh, dip into our own uh, beer here first and have our, have our interlude? And wet your whistle. Okay. So we'll do a, we'll sort of, this isn't directly related because Bert Grant's beer no longer exists. That's right. We can't. We can't do this. Hasn't been around for, like I said, a couple of decades. So. But we have a fun little, little, uh, completely uh, unrelated laboratory experiment here. That's unrelated to Bert Grant. Although uh, I suppose there are some tendrils you could draw, which is we have two beers from Deschutes Brewing. Deschutes been around for a long time, and they're both a Black Butte Porter, uh, um, which is one of their earliest and most successful beers. Mm-hmm. And what's fun about this is that Deschutes has now uh, released a non-alcoholic version of their Black Butte Porter. Yeah. Uh, and so um, they sent you both? Is that what happened? Yeah, they remarkably sent me a couple of... They, they yeah, sent let me you the, pour the regular. I'll pour the non-alcoholic. The regular and the non-alcoholic. And it, it would incline me to think that they're pretty proud of how the non-alcoholic tastes because they want us to do a side-by-side they want tasting. To do a side-by-side tasting. Well, challenge accepted. We're gonna, uh, we're so gonna we'll you. see whether they're wise or not. <laughs> uh, actually, so we have done uh, a podcast on non-alcoholic beer where we talked to the folks from Athletic Brewing, which is going great guns these days. It really is. Yeah, we, we really nailed that one. And now there are more craft beer. Partake in Canada is another one that's been – um, I think reasonably successful and, 
Uh, yeah, they're all over so the place. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing without seeing any real data that it's a growing market and that it's doing pretty well. Yeah, it's a somewhat growing market. It's definitely uh, a market that I think is people are are betting on more than they're. Like, it's not that big yet. It's not growing that fast. But people, well, are really yeah, there are only a few people doing it. The one nice thing is that you can sell it anywhere. You don't have to have a distribute. You know, it's non-alcoholic, so you can sell it like soda. Uh, yeah. So, how did you pour that? Mine was very carbonated, so that it's roused quite a big head, big, big creamy head. Um, and yours is less so. Well, that's one you're an amateur and i'm a professional that's the difference there well no i would say mine is like perfectly served and yours is maybe a <laughs> you little couldn't bit even wanting. get your whole beer in there what are you talking a little about? bit wanting or... no i think it's i think that i think the difference is they're different beers that's the the issue <gasps> oh okay All right. but they look a lot alike don't they yeah i wonder what um the head color is identical if we thought about this maybe i should have uh i should have done it behind my computer here and then would have given you one and said which one is which but anyway uh are you going to start with the alcoholic version how, how does one decide to do a side-by-side tasting with alcohol? i don't know i'm just going to smell them first that okay. smells like a black bee porter all right see what this one smells like it smells different they don't smell the same I'll pretty sure even from aroma you can tell the difference I'll be the dead oh yeah not quite as roasty malty yeah, that one has a kind of a like a a malted milk malt smell. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I know and, what you're saying. And that one, this one's a little bit more roasty. Yeah, they look very similar. Other than the head, they look similar. The color's right. Yeah, they they look. I mean, the the you mean by the head by head you mean the volume because the color is the same. The the head color is the same. Oh yeah, sorry. I just mean yeah. I mean the volume. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna. All right. I'll and, go. And I'm getting a lot of lacing off the the. Uh, the non-alcoholic one, less so with the regular one. So here we go. Um, you're starting with the alcoholic. I'm starting with non-alcoholic. Okay. All right. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say anything yet. And now we're gonna switch. Yep. I I started with the black butte. It tastes like black butte. Yeah, it's pretty consistent with my experience. Yeah, definitely not the same beer. It's not the same beer. It lacks that richness. It lacks, you know, you always miss the alcohol in non-alcoholic beers. It does something to the mouthfeel. It does something to the heft, right? There's sort of a missing middle. But I will say that the flavor is is good. I mean, they've 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 got the flavor pretty darn dialed in there. Yeah, I agree too. I think three, three components in the flavor profile of uh, Black Butte are the 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 base malts which are kind of bready and nice mm-hmm. and then there's a, a kind of a a sweet caramel malty component before you get that nice roast finish right and i'm finding the same three elements yeah. in, the, in the other one which yeah, is i think they're here really nice as you mentioned it's a little bit different on the nose mm-hmm. that roast doesn't pop through like it does in the right in the regular version and you know you're always going to miss that alcohol. I mean, it's that's right. It's a big part of it, but that's why I I considered doing the uh, the blind tasting and getting out our roll of tape and and re- reprising that whole process. But I I felt like there'd be no yeah we, we were not going to be fooled. <laughs> no, so you wouldn't you wouldn't be fooled. But it's a very tasty, very satisfying tipple, and it's an evocation of black beauty. And it's an evocation of black beauty. I mean, that's they've got the flavor profile there. It's, yeah, I, I think it's impressive. I I, mean, I, I, I do too. 
By I the way, it was pretty ballsy of them to do this. It is. It is. It is. And uh, and and good on them for doing this. I think um, uh, the reason I wanted to to do the non-alcoholic beer podcast quite a while ago uh, at the very beginning of this was um, because I thought one that the Europeans do it a lot more, especially the Germans right. do it a lot more and, and there must be something to it. <clears throat> and two, the technology must have evolved. Uh, and three, that it's a good idea. I mean, it's a good people who like beer don't always need to drink a lot of alcohol and it's a way to, it's a way to have, um, have your beer and uh, not have to worry about, the side effects of the alcohol. Uh, yeah, I agree, and I, I've, I've done tastings of multiple versions of these, and they, they're not. Let me just say that they're not uniformly palatable. Uh, so the yeah. fact that this is, it, it you just can't com- compare them. There's something about the finish, and this is what I noticed when I was doing my blind tastings or my 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 panel tastings of the non-alcoholic beers is the finish is always hollow yeah. uh, in a way that that alcoholic beer is not. There's yeah. a there's a, a nice pop with a good alcoholic beer that yep. you just can't get. Yeah, and, and you never will. And you never will, and you just have to give up on some of the elements yeah. that you get with alcoholic beer. I will say this is a good style to try to do non-alcoholic uh, beer because exactly. there's a lot of other stuff going on. Uh, I've found that that missing middle really affects like an IPA if you try to do like a non-alcoholic IPA. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and you can get the hops right, but then everything else is so wrong. It's just like a it, it Yeah. Hop hop water or something exactly yeah it just sort of feels weird and thin and and yeah it just doesn't doesn't work i think uh lagers is another area that works pretty well in um uh yeah so i think they chose the right one i think black butte is a good candidate for it and and it's good it's so really good you you found something interesting yeah, on that so, label <laughs> we've got to talk about so that. yeah i was clued in so they, they sent two cans they look very similar uh one has their traditional uh sort of black oval around the logo and this one has a red one and it says non-alcoholic and a banner across um in fact they don't even call it porter they just call it black butte non-alcoholic but uh the the regular one says uh deschutes brewery bend oregon and the non-alcoholic one says deschutes brewery established in bend oregon and it says if you look at the small print that it is brewed and packaged in denver colorado with a patented bruvo technology which gently manages alcohol while maintaining flavor. So I'm curious because I don't think they told you anything about how they're doing it, but. Yeah, actually these beers came whilst I was in Newport and they were just in the fridge when I got home. (laughs) If there was was a material that came along with it, I didn't see that. So that's interesting. Yeah. So they're, they're having it done elsewhere. Yeah. Um, That is really interesting. Yeah, and, uh, and, it's, and there are different ways to make this. And yeah, and we talked to athletic guys. They didn't want to say a word about how they their very special process about making non-alcoholic. So people are very proprietary about the way they remove the alcohol from the beer. And I think they're smart to do that, given that everybody and their dog is now trying to make non-alcoholic beer. Yeah, keeping that under their hat is probably good. And they continue to make some of the best in the country. Athletic is, is continues to be a leader in making really palatable ones. So yeah, there's there's so they they figure something out. Uh, yeah, interesting. Well, I, I can definitely recommend it, uh, with the caveat that if you're getting a non-alcoholic beer, you're getting a non-alcoholic beer. And so there's going to be no alcohol. That's exactly Uh, right. But if you want a good one, I would definitely recommend this one. This is one of the better ones I've ever had. Yeah. There's no, there's no way to do the impossible burger kind of sleight of hand where you, you make it, you know, you use textures and flavors and reconstruct a thing. So it's, it, it really tastes like. Well, never say never. Yeah, that's true. Food scientists might 
get hard at work at finding some substitute that you can throw in your beer that mimics the alcohol. But. It's yeah, it's possible, but um, but so far we haven't seen that. We're really far from those old Klaus Taller days, caliber. Yep, those things were just horrible, yes. undrinkable. Yes, so they they improved enormously over those days. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's go back to get back to Burt Grant, in Yakima, Washington. Yeah. So I gotta we got we we have to tarry for just a moment to return to 1982, the benighted uh, decade of the 1980s when craft brewing started, because uh, the the IPA that 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 he was making in 1983 couldn't have been like more weird and out of step with. Uh, what what beer what what craft brewing was trying to do and also what uh of course domestic loggers were like so all domestic loggers were roughly the same it was a commodity product at that point and the craft brewers who came along were really trying to you know imitate uh european styles they were doing things mm-hmm. like uh uh the vienna lager that uh jim cook would make at boston brewing a little while right. later and um in in the northwest we had this Widmer Hefeweizen that would become popular a little bit later and mm-hmm. Amber Ales, uh, you know, beers that, that would step a drinker up from what they understood domestic lagers were, which is beer to something more full flavor, but like not so weird that it was, it was out of bounds. Yeah. And Bert didn't do that at all. <laughs> he just went for it. He made, he made incredibly bold beers that, uh, you know, would, would have, would have seemed bold 20 years later. Uh, they were still, you know, on that, on the, on the kind of far end, right. but he, that to the extent that he would make a concession, his Imperial stout, if I recall, was something like seven and a half percent. So it wasn't, an imperial stout like we would make today, but even seven and a half percent was considered, you know, rocket fuel for the day. It was, it was a very, very strong beer. Right. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> when he released his IPA in 1983, it was made with Galena and Cascade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he loved Cascade hops. He yeah. was, and he was also one of the first people to do uh, fresh hop beers. Mm-hmm. So he was doing fresh hop beers. I mean, he was right there in, in Yakima. Yeah. So the fields were really close. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was doing that, uh, by the mid nineties, he was doing fresh hop beers. He loved, he loved hops. Um, and, uh, it had, it had kind of that, that classic palette we now think of with a little bit of caramel malt. And he, yeah. he did not use a ton of caramel malt. I remember this beer quite clearly. It was, it was fairly pale. It was much more like a San Diego version than a, than a really thick version. Right. Um, and I'm pretty sure he used step mashing, although I can't find any, uh, reporting to describe how the beer was made. I just right. think people were too crude to understand that, <laughs> that question then. So, uh, but he, you know, he had, he'd worked in an industrial breweries and he understood a lot about beer. He was not a home brewer. He, you know, he, he was in his mid fifties when, when they, uh, opened this brewery. Right. Um, and I have a wonderful quote, uh, that, that, uh, comes out of his book that he wrote sort of at near the end of his life, a memoir, um, where Roger, he quotes Roger Protz, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought I would read just to kind of give you a sense of a contemporaneous, uh, description of the beer for, for people, uh, how it hit, what kind of impact it had for people at the time. Yeah. So Roger Protz is a famous English writer uh, of Michael Jackson's uh, vintage. And right. he starts out, Michael Jackson described it as, quote, pale, assertive, intensely dry, bitter, aromatic style of beer. 
I was just stunned by the bitterness of it. The combination of pale color, aromatic hop character, and an intensity of bitterness far exceeded any IPA made in Britain. The fact that people are recreating IPAs with the right sort of strength of about 6 or 7% of alcohol by volume and a very intense hoppiness says a lot for the pioneering work he has done. Uh. So it was it was notable internationally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, w- w- the, the existence of a beer doesn't mean it had any influence. Um, I, I bet as a researcher, you have to be careful about right. causality. Yeah, like yeah. chronology and causality aren't the same thing. Yeah. Um, so, we, you know, it could have been that Bert made this really interesting beer 10 or 15 years before it was before its time and it faded into obscurity and never had any impact. Yeah. And I think uh, if people like me weren't trying to make an argument that I'm about to make, that might've been <laughs> what happened, but, I, but actually it had a, I think it had a quite a profound effect in the Northwest. And I, I don't, I won't talk about it in a national context, okay. but there yeah. was an interesting thing that happened. So he, he's making uh, his beer in the, in the early eighties when Red Hook is starting and then pretty soon Bridgeport and, uh, Widmer's in 1984 mm-hmm. get going in Portland. And he's look, so he's looking at Seattle now, his two big potential biggest markets, Seattle and, and Portland, right. which are about equidistant from him. Yeah. Uh, they've got their own breweries, right? Yeah. And his, his idea is, oh my God, if I, if I don't have a presence in these cities, I'm going to get out. Cause it, yeah. like, how can we have more than one or two breweries in the town? I'm going to be aced out. Right. So a new brewery was opening up in Portland uh, called Portland Brewing, which we've mm-hmm. talked about here. Yep. Here, I'll give you the leaded one. <laughs> I'm bogarting it. Uh, and they hadn't opened yet, but he said, I'll help you guys out. Uh, I'll contract you guys to make my beer here so that it can be served fresh in Portland, in the Portland market. Right. And it had, and so they said yes, and they did it. And it actually was really common in the Portland market uh, for, I don't know, 10 years yep. or something. It yep, was I a remember. really, yeah, it was really common beer. So this had two effects. For one thing, it, they kind of supercharged the availability of, of his weird, strong beer right. in, in Portland. <laughs> but because he was this, this professional brewer who had these decades of experience as a brewer, he was really, really, really fixated on quality. Right. And I think, uh, when you look at how Portland, why Portland is weird and different than a lot of other cities. I think it has a lot to do with quality. Um, by the, uh, the word Birvana, which we use immodestly to describe our city, was one that was uh, first introduced in 1992. Did you know that? 1992? I did not. Yeah. Uh, in my old rag, the Willamette Week. Uh, and that's that's crazy early. That's less than a decade after the first breweries were, were started here. Right. But already the city seemed so awash in good beer yeah. that uh, local boosters were giving it this name. And it's in part because local breweries were competing against each other in what was already quite a competitive market. And so quality became a big deal. Yeah. In Seattle, that didn't happen. In Seattle, Red Hook came out with this weird beer that uh, had a they, – they, they sourced a bad yeast strain and it was a Belgian yeast strain and it was kind of funky <laughs> – uh, and it was their, their beer style, which they called an ESB, um, was yep. full of isoamyl acetate and it was really banana-y, um, and it kind of put people off. And so, you know, that was the flagship first brewery in Seattle and it kind of was weird and it, and it, I don't think it helped Seattle out to have that. Right. Um, and Burke, for whatever reason, didn't do a 
a similar relationship in Seattle with the brewery there. So Portland was really the one that he influenced the most. Uh, and <clears throat> at this point, we're now going to, we're going to go a little bit away from factual history that I can document into personal experience. Mm -hmm. And I can draw you in here because you and I, by the time we were homebrewing in Madison in 1994, mm -hmm. uh, were well aware of what IPAs were. We were brewing IPAs. Like IPAs were already yeah. a, a thing that we knew and we knew that they needed to be pretty big and pretty bitter. Yeah. Um, they were no longer weird. And we knew you needed some caramel malt, you needed some Cascade hot. <laughs> That's right. right? Like <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like – very, very early on, IPAs were a thing in Portland. We yes. had somehow grown up with IPAs and just osmotically absorbed them into our, our minds. And, and, and so, you know, by the early 90s, uh, IPA was a thing in Oregon. So it's funny yeah, because, well, I was just going to say, it's funny because there were a bunch of early, like Amber, Full Sail had their Amber and uh, Bridgeport had their Blue Heron and Widmers were going crazy with the Hefeweizen. And you, well, you'll know exactly when that really hit. But the one sort of style that became kind of the hallmark was the IPA in the end. Mm -hmm. Like then every like each one might have their own little idiosyncratic brew. Black Butte Porter is another example of what you know Deschutes was doing. But then everybody eventually came out with their version of IPA, and it was all right. from the same template, which, yeah. as you're arguing could be traced all the way to Burt Grant. Yeah, I mean it was it was you know it was a beer that you could go to the grocery store and buy. Uh, certainly in Oregon, I assume all over Washington as well. You go to Fred Meyer and you can buy an IPA on the grocery store in the 1980s in, in Oregon, mm -hmm. which is way, way, way sooner than other places. And no matter who you bought it from, you were getting a very similar. That's beer. right. Because he'd set the template. Yeah. It needs to be pretty strong, pretty bitter, uh, full of character. This is not a mess around beer. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, you started to see other examples of IPAs come out. You know, pretty early. I mean, Full Sales was out pretty early. Terry Farendorf uh, at Steelhead mm -hmm. had uh, her her IPA out. I can't remember. I taught. I interviewed her for the blog. It was it was actually quite early, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a pretty uh, important uh, IPA. So yeah, you 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 saw these things cropping up, and when I hear other in other parts of the country when they when they say oh yeah you know i remember having that that ipa in the late 90s that was a super early ipa it was a great ipa and i'm like i don't know man 15 years before that in, in oregon <laughs> we were drinking ipas and it, the whole the whole sequencing of it is, is a little bit confusing to me because of uh uh the the way that you know yeah a lot lost sales data and and, right. and memory kind of all but if you're looking to make a causal claim i think the one thing you can say is that the northwest ipa became its own thing mm -hmm. like you yeah know, the california southern california ipa was different and and it sort of took on different characteristics in different parts but and the and the northwest ipa was just like what Bert grant created originally yeah, I think it is. And I think uh, because it was so successful and it spawned so many imitators so quickly, mm -hmm. it was easy to forget the original, right? You can you can remember all these other beers. Yeah, of course. Uh, they're, they're kind of obvious, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was Bert who really, who really introduced the idea. And I think, I really think quality is a big, a big part of a lot of this. Uh, it was, you know, it's a, it's important that you make good beer in, in order for that to like a meme reproduce. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and then what's almost been lost to the sands of time now, uh, but is that just that bracing bitterness that 
is characteristic of those old beers. We're, yeah. we're basically gone. I mean, it's hard to find anymore right. a beer that smacks you in the face with bitterness. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I don't know. I don't really have a greater point than that. It's just interesting the way that it's now evolved. And I understand. I mean, they're, they're challenging beers. Um, and you can make a sort of a more more friendly beer, I suppose, and still get all that great flavor out of it. But right. But at the time, I mean, that was kind of what you what you're looking for. Like that was the thing. I want to get smacked smacked in the face with this beer, and it was, you know, you really developed a fondness for that that bracing bitterness. And it was, I mean, it was bracing bitterness, but it also wasn't so over the top. I mean, at five, I, I can't, re- I couldn't find good evidence of what that that 1983 beer, what its strength was. Uh, yeah. it, the um, Recording the the hops Galena and Cascade and the and the IBUs at fifty, mm-hmm. that, that info is out there. But uh, fifty IBUs is not you know it's not an insane amount of IBUs. Uh, it was an insane amount of IBUs at the time, but it objectively wasn't terrible. Yeah. <laughs> right? It probably was not a terrible beer. It was no. probably assertively bitter, but not like yeah, and not like crazy. the face melting bitterness that yeah. you got later from San Diego and places like that. But by the way, the Prots is that how you pronounce it? quote says six to to seven percent so right you can extrapolate perhaps that that you know it was in that range i'm guessing it was in the low sixes because that would have been considered quite a strong beer at the time yeah and then that also became kind of the template right low six percent yeah yeah i i always felt like in in oregon uh the yeah like 6.2 to 6.67 was kind of the range and in san diego it was like over seven so that was another big Big yeah. difference. And I don't, I can't tell you what the, I don't know the, I can't give the, uh, uh, the oral history of San Diego and how that all developed, but I'm sure there's a story there. I'm sure there's an important beer. It might be Swami's from Pizza Port or something else <laughs> that was, you know, really an important development. Yeah. Um, but they, the, these things really have, have long lasting influence. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, that template lasted a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking at least 10, 15 years, right? Or basically you were getting that caramel malt. Cascade hops, amber color. Yeah, and I think you can say in a, in, a, in another way that it, it, it persists in that uh, Northwesterners just like a little bit of bitterness, right? Because for forty years, yeah, uh, since Burt Grant debuted debuted forty years ago, bitterness has been a thing we knew about, and uh, a lot of our beers have been pretty bitter. And even though we've ratcheted off of those and things have evolved that quality of bitterness is something that's sort of in our bones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that, and that sort of that flavor profile has become, you know, heavily fruity citrusy, but back then it was very piney floral. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was also really characteristic. And- yeah. It's interesting. Galena is an old kind of obsolete hop, uh, that was first grown in Idaho as if memory serves. It, mm-hmm. And, um, it was a bitter, it was like one of those early high bitter hops, but it's kind of a gnarly, like rugged <laughs> bitterness. So that's why it fell out of, uh, popularity. I don't, I, it's probably still grown, but not really very much. Uh, was it a, was it a bright beer? Yeah, it was really bright. That's what I remember as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. I, just again, from memory, but yeah, it, in memory, it was a really, yeah. Because uh, later on, that sort of that, and pretty pale, not really deep caramely colored, but right. you know, fairly pale beer. Yeah, that part I don't remember very well. But yeah, it was you know ten years later then the people started sort of making more of these murky beers as they started throwing different hops and more hops in there, and just that became kind of a characteristic as well later. But 
Yeah, I think he was probably uh, brewing the way that he was taught, which yep. is a lot of beer in the kettle or a lot of hops in the kettle. Not very many hops in the whirlpool. Probably right. no hops in the whirlpool. Yep. I don't know if he was dry hopping or not, but that's you know you get a lot of particulates in those later editions. Um, all that all that true will will drop out if it's all kettle hopping, so yeah. you can get rid of that and clean it up pretty well. Uh, so, uh, what happened to his brewery? Brand. Yeah, he he was really successful, and he he went along. Uh, but as he got older, uh, he got you know kind of tired. Or he he actually um, there. I I heard a story that uh, he lost his sense of smell at some point. It really kind of damaged the brewery because he couldn't he couldn't smell diacetyl anymore. Uh. And he had some diacetyl problems, and then he brought in a brewer and it cleaned it up. Um, but by the uh, late nineteen mid 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 nineteen nineties. Late 1990s, somewhere in there, he sold it to a winery. Actually, interestingly, right. and they carried the brand forward. Uh, and he, you know, he was he is. I, I didn't I didn't talk too much about Bert the character. Oh, we should throw in. I I forgot to do this before. We have one uh, 15 second clip that I scraped off the internet, which ah. we can throw in here, so you can hear what he sounded like. It's a a quote on hops. Just I wanted you to be able to hear it. So we'll throw that in here, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about him as we go out. All hops will give you a distinctive flavor. You know, very few hops are the same. They're in groups, and you may not be able to distinguish them in the groups, except at high concentrations, but they all do have totally different patterns of aroma. So there you can you can hear him. He's already, uh, you can kind of hear in his voice, he was already a, an older guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was a ni- it's a nice clip um, that... Uh, uh, where he's talking about hops, which is cool, but um, yeah, he he sort of you know got got old and uh, yep. kind of got out of the business. He actually died in two thousand one. Um, his brand lived beyond him, and I don't know exactly what led to its demise, but um, it was uh, you know I think it was on it was probably on the market for you know sometime after his death, not very long after his death, and then it kind of just yeah, but twenty went away. plus years, good run. Yes, not a bad run, especially <laughs> if, uh, especially when you start a brewery. When, you, when you're my age, he was 54 when he started it, which is my age, and I feel like that's crazy. What are you doing? It's time. <laughs> it's time for the rocking chair. Yeah. So, uh, he's a he's a real character. I will uh, one last little thing about him. He was really funny when I, I he one of the very first people I interviewed when I was writing for Willamette Week back in the 90s was Burt Grant. He was in town and he invited oh, me out right. for lunch. And I was working at PSU as a researcher. And so I joined him downtown at a restaurant and he got me hammered. <laughs> he just kept ordering beers, 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 beers. And I rolled back into the office. I don't know why I didn't call in sick at that point, but I rolled back into the office. Unfortunately, I had my own cubicle and I just sat there quietly trying to maintain. And uh, yeah, he was, he was a serious character. That was your moonlighting job. Yeah. I was in my, I was in my twenties, just to be clear, my late twenties. So I was, I was younger and unwise then. Writing, Writing the mash. That's right. The column in the Wyoming League. Okay. Well, uh, here's the Burt Grant and his legacy. Indeed. Thank, thank you for that. Yeah. That, that uh, yeah. Well, you don't forget when you tell the story of IPA, don't forget Burt Grant, a really Grant. important figure. One of the many important figures, but certainly an important figure not to be forgotten. Yeah. Whether or not the causal links are super solid or not doesn't really matter because it's a good, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's definitely, the, I think it's definitely, uh, it, there's a, a big causal link in Oregon and Washington. And, yeah. um, you know, when you, when you, when you pick up a, 
a Lagunitas or a, a New Belgium IPA, you know, what influence did he have on that? Hard to say, but, um, but yeah, he was an important founder of, of, of the, the hops tradition in the United States. So remember the name, Bert Grant. All right. All right. Well, we have time for a quick mailbag, a dip into the mailbag. Indeed. (laughs) And, uh, this one comes via Twitter. You haven't said from whom, uh, yeah, it's the Hop Culture Reference was oh. the is the name of the uh, the the account. Oh, I see. Okay, uh, and uh, it says listen to the beer listening to the beer Vana pod while walking through uh, Utrecht, researching a historic beer walk through this city. Foggy day, but it could be worse, right? Good show, by the way. I liked hearing about the Czech beers. Have a feeling those and German styles will become popular again this year. It was cool just to think of somebody listening to our podcast walking, well, walking through, through a foggy day in Utrecht. Yeah, yeah. That uh, is, you know, podcasts are weird, right? Like they're just out there. Yeah. In 20 years, someone can potentially listen to the podcast wherever they are. And uh, yeah, it has no borders, has no boundaries. Yeah. So I don't even know who this person's real name is, but thank you for listening. Yeah. Uh, I hope you're still lot. listening. Uh, wish, wish I was in Utrecht. Yeah, and I would love to have more Czech styles become popular. So yeah, me too. I don't know if he and I don't know if that's a reference to uh, the Netherlands or the United right. States or what. Yeah, what no. but. <laughs> popular where, but that's fine. Popular anywhere. Yeah. All right. Well, we should uh, wrap this up. So a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at Beervana Blog or on Twitter at Beervana Pod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana Blog and he tweets at Beervana. Patrick tweets at Beeronomics, and I always completely forget about Instagram, but I'm trying to kind of have an Instagram account. You got to do that, man. I'm doing all the I know, other. I know, I know, I know. Pod. I, I, I understand. I took that on as my task, and I'm failing miserably, but. You know, what can I do? I'm an old man. Old man don't know nothing about Instagram. It's true. I should I should have thrown my – when I was in uh, Newport a couple of weeks ago, I should have thrown the uh, the comment I, I had on my regular social media on that, which is I was sitting at, uh, at the Rogue. I made a pilgrimage down to the Rogue in Newport, which is where they're from. And it was the mid-afternoon, right? So I'm, I'm drinking beers in the bar. And I look around and there's all these old guys in there. I'm like, oh the hell man all these old retired guys and then i i catch sight of myself in the mirror at the bar and i see this grizzled white bearded face oh, no! i'm one of them i'm one of them i'm one of these old guys drinking beer in the mid-afternoon so yeah the hipster walks in and just looks at you and just thinks oh. i know would have turned tail and ran but uh that's a good story yeah and well anytime you have you should just snap a little picture and throw it up on instagram man I know. I should have done it. I forgot you all about it. You do very things. I honestly, I have barely had any beer and gone anywhere and had beer, and I'm I'm no good. So, well, I don't help. We have to we have to remedy that. All right. Well, uh, well, cheers. I don't know which one I have. I'll tell you once I've had my sip. All right. Cheers, Patrick. Cheers. You have the which one? Alcoholy one. Yeah, you do.